Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 16. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a how long it You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Today, we have another great smorgasbord of fun stories for your listening pleasure. Some are true and some came straight from the author's imaginations. We'll begin with the first chapter of Becky Avella's new release, a romantic suspense novel with a simple title, Targeted. Seattle Police, K-9 unit, announce yourself. Officer Rick Powell's voice boomed through the open door. If you do not announce yourself, we will send in the dog. If you surrender now, you will not be harmed. Rick kept the leash taut and his hand steady on his canine partner's back. The dog's training held him still, but Rick knew the Belgian Malinois wanted to go. His muscles quivered to be set free to work again. Only absolute devotion to Rick held the dog back. Kneeling beside him, Rick crooned the German command for stay and stroked the fur along Axel's back. I understand, buddy. I'm ready to work, too. The city blocks surrounding the early 20th century brick townhouse had been cordoned off. SWAT team members were poised for action, waiting for the signal that would allow them to penetrate the building, too eager to capture the killer inside to mind the pouring rain running down their stoic faces. Intel indicated the suspect was home and hiding. If their information was correct, then he would soon be calling prison home. Rick believed it was more than he deserved, and it was about time. Ready? Sergeant Tara Watkins asked Rick. Very, Rick answered. Terrell was Rick's supervisor, but the two had been friends for a long time. It was Rick's first day back on regular duty after an extensive medical leave, and Terrell knew better than any of the others around him how important it was to Rick to be back in the field. Rick nodded his head in the direction of a wiry man pacing the sidewalk behind the two of them, but maybe not quite as ready as Shelton is to go get this guy. Terrell's gaze followed where Rick pointed and chuckled. No kidding. Detective Gary Shelton deserved the credit for cracking this case. Three unsolved and particularly gruesome murders had terrified the city of Seattle for over a year. It was Shelton who had finally identified Julian Hale as the man responsible for the deaths of those women. And it was Julian Hale whom they believed was hiding inside this townhouse now. Investigating the killings had consumed this detective's lives and bringing Hale to justice had become Shelton's personal mission. They were so close to making that happen. Rick leaned forward, anxious to serve this warrant. He hoped that capturing Hale would allow Shelton some much-earned peace. Rick called his warning into the house once again, his voice even louder and deeper. You are surrounded. Announce yourself. Now. Axel squirmed, his tail thumping on the door jamb. The dog knew it was go time. Stroking Axel's fur, Rick's fingers brushed across the healed scar running along the dog's side. Rick had similar scars on his own abdomen. A quick flood of panic raced through his body. Were they both ready to face what was about to go down? Don't go there, he told himself. This is a new start. No wallowing in the past. This is your last chance to surrender. Rick's warning echoed into the house, answered only by silence. 
He unclasped Axel's leash, but kept his hand firm on the dog's back, containing him. Axel's tail thumped harder and faster. No answer came. No one exited the building. No more chances. Axel's muscles quivered in anticipation. Rick might have doubts, but Axel didn't. The dog whined as if to say, Let me go! Pride for Axel pushed away the panic. After a confrontation with human traffickers that left both Axel and Rick near death, the dog had defied all odds and all of the claims that he would never recover. It was only their first day back, but Rick knew that Axel was stronger than ever and more than capable of doing what was needed. He drew strength from Axel and raised his hand, shouting the command to search. That one word ignited the built-up energy within Axel's body, propelling the dog forward off his haunches. He disappeared into the house as the men outside waited for barking to alert them to the hidden suspect's location. After several moments of silence, they couldn't wait any longer. The SWAT commander's signal sent Rick and the rest of the Metro team crashing into the house with weapons raised. The baritone shouts of, Police! And the urgent calls of, Go! 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 Harmonized with the high crystal notes of shattering glass, all of it fueling Rick's adrenaline. He caught sight of Axel and trailed after the dog through the chaos, tuning his ears for the sounds of bark. Come on, Axel, show me where the bad guy is hiding. Between the men and the dog, the systematic search of the small townhouse didn't last long. Shout after shout of clear filled Rick with more disappointment. His sense of justice cried to see this man in handcuffs. Julian Hale had to be in here somewhere. Rick followed Axel up the stairs to a landing, where he spotted a pull-down attic entrance in the ceiling. He lowered the trap door, revealing a wooden staircase. Could Hale be hiding in the attic? Rick trained his gun on the stairs and called out a standard warning one more time. He gave Hale no longer than a heartbeat to comply, then shouted the command to go ahead. Without a second of hesitation, Axel shot up the stairs, eager for a new area to search, as if he couldn't remember the stabbing they had both lived through. Rick remembered clearly the streetlights flickering off the slashing blade, the sight of Axel airborne, latching his teeth into the man, wielding the knife. The feel of pain so searing, Rick hadn't been able to believe it was his own. It would all be forever embedded in his memory. But Axel was right. Those memories had nothing to do with the job at hand. There was a serial killer loose. Getting Julian Hale behind bars before he hurt someone again was the only thing Rick should be thinking about. Axel was relying on his training and appeared as unwilling to admit defeat as his human co-workers. Taking the dog's lead, Rick shook away the bad memories, clouding his memory and focused. He crouched low, taking the stairs much slower than Axel had done. Although he was convinced by this point that Hale probably wasn't up there, he wasn't taking any chances. He bent and entered the attic space, gun first, his eyes fighting to adjust in the dim light coming from a window in the sloped ceiling. The gray drizzle outside made it even darker, but soon his eyes were able to make out the layout of the room. The attic had been remodeled from its original intended storage space. Two overstuffed chairs and a small love seat were arranged into a conversational sitting space in the center of the room, and a small home office area with bookshelves lined the far wall. Instead of, of evoking the cozy feeling it looked as though it should evoke, the room triggered Rick's internal radar. After seven years of law enforcement, he had encountered enough evil to be able to sense when something wasn't right. Axel's whine confirmed that feeling, sending goosebumps popping up along Rick's arm. Inching his way around the room, Rick searched every nook or possible hiding place. His jaw clenched. The room was clear. How had Hale gotten away? He joined Axel by the desk. 
Rick fumbled with the lamp until he found the switch, illuminating the desk and the wall behind it. Dread settled into his stomach as heavy as if he'd swallowed cement. Two bulletin boards hung on the wall. On the left board, there were six photographs stapled in a three-by-two grid. In the second row, Rick recognized the photographs of the three women he already knew Hale had killed. But the upper three photographs were of unfamiliar faces. Were they also victims? Was it possible detectives had missed Hale's connection to other murders? Somehow, he knew all of these women were dead. His breathing slowed as he stared at the six pictures. Thinking about the young lives represented in them made the air around him almost too heavy to breathe. His gaze moved to the second board. White three-by-five cards, small photographs, and highlighted spreadsheets were stapled across the outside edges of the board, creating a homemade flowchart. But it was the eight-by-ten photograph in the center that concerned him the most. Rick studied the girl-next-door beauty, smiling back at him from the picture. He noted her heart-shaped face and her long, strawberry-blonde curls. It was a simple photograph, exactly the type of blue background portrait that school kids brought home each year, or the type that school teachers had taken for their staff photo. The innocence of it screamed at him. This picture did not belong in the house of a killer. He spoke into his radio. Attic's clear. And Sarge, he swallowed, hating to be the bearer of such bad news. But if anyone could help this woman right now, it was Terrell Watkins. Sarge, you need to get up here and see this. His gaze traveled back to the photo. She must be Hale's next victim. Rick groaned. She was out there somewhere in the city, unprotected and unaware that she was standing in the crosshairs of a psychopath. But that wasn't the worst of it. The worst part was, Rick knew her. So what happens next? <laughs> I'm going to read from, um, from a book, The Committee for the Reburial of Liver-Eating Johnston, by Tri Robinson. Educator, church planter, and advocate for the world's extreme poor. Tri Robinson writes about his childhood struggles with dyslexia and how he became a teacher in the Committee for the Reburial of Liver-Eating Johnston. Memoirs of a Dyslexic Teacher. That's a long enough title, isn't it? Chapter 1 is titled, The Gift of a Teacher Named Mr. Hansen. In September of 1973, I was 25 years old and just beginning my second year of teaching in Lancaster, California. I was young and idealistic, believing that a teacher could change the world for the better, one student at a time. I believe this was true because of a teacher I encountered many years before who had not only empowered me, but showed me that teaching was more of a calling than a profession. Mr. Hansen was my 7th grade English teacher at Portola Junior High School in the San Fernando Valley of Southern California. He was a man who loved his classroom role and was made for it. He had the amazing ability to see through the exterior of his students into the inner qualities of their hearts and character. He saw things we couldn't see ourselves, and by some miracle, he saw something good in me. Motivation for a Life of Teaching in the early 1960s, no one truly understood dyslexia. 
Today, it's fairly common knowledge that it's learning disability, which causes the brain to reverse the images of numbers and alphabetical letters, making basic skills such as reading and spelling next to impossible. For those like me, dyslexia created a handicap that made a person, especially one just entering the seventh grade, feel unintelligent and inadequate. Not a good thing for a boy who, near, um, who was nearly the smallest in his class, trying to survive the basic feelings of inferiority that so often accompany adolescence. As a result, I hated school and spent most of my classroom hours daydreaming or being in the mountains far away. Hunting and fishing occupied my mind, two things I was fairly good at for a boy my age. One afternoon in the fall of my seventh grade year, I was called in the school counselor's office for what was supposed to be an inspiring pep talk. It was a meeting prompted by another of my not-so-great report cards. I can't pretend to recall the exact words, Mrs. Jacobson said that day, but there were a few things I never forgot. The conversation started out, as it often did, with Mrs. Jacobson reminding me of my older sister Gail's perfection. Gail had recently graduated to high school with a 4.0 average and had been a gift to all her teachers. Mrs. Jacobson also reminded me that my father, Dr. F. W. Robinson, Jr., was a highly respected high school principal in the same school district. Uh, Neither of those realities was new to me. I lived with both of those people and had great respect for them myself. I guess it was the context in which she framed her observations that stimulated an even greater awareness of my own shortcomings. I couldn't help but compare my lack of academic achievement with the reputations and accomplishments of so many others who were in my life. The final clincher came when Mrs. Jacobson asked to see my notebook. In those days, the commonly used notebook was a three-ring binder covered with a blue denim material. At the beginning of every school year, uh, students would be required to organize dividers, which had uh, labeled tabs designated each class to be taken during the semester. One section would be designated for math, one for English, one for history, and so on. All assignments and homework pertaining to any given subject or class would be found in its proper place. That was good for the first few weeks of school. But a boy of 13 who dreamed of hunting and fishing often neglected to keep things organized as well as they should be. Eventually, homework assignments and other important papers had a way of getting stuck here and there, this way and that. In addition to this, the denim covers begged to be drawn on during moments of classroom doldrums, often becoming cluttered with squiggles and drawings of things like shotguns and fishing tackle. At any rate, When Mrs. Jacobson picked up my notebook, she wasn't as careful as she might have been, causing the papers inside to go skittering across her desk and onto the floor. With that, she said in a disgusted tone, Franklin, that's what I was called in those days, this notebook looks like your brains are going to look if you don't get your act together. Then, intentionally driving the point home, she interjected, If you don't start applying yourself at school, the only employment that will ever be available to you will be pumping gas. At that moment, I felt like a total loser. And in retrospect, some 50 years later, most gas stations have become self-service, which would have rendered me completely and totally unemployable, according to Mrs. Jacobson's admonitions. 
If I didn't get my act together, I was possibly destined to become a street person. Not only did Mrs. Jacobson deliver a defeating and unempowering proclamation concerning my future, but to add insult to injury, she had actually verbalized the exact way I had privately been feeling about myself. I concluded that she was right and hopelessly left her office, accepting her observations as total truth. To be deemed as the worst day of my young life to that point, unbeknownst to me, would soon become one of the very best. Transforming Words of a Caring Teacher Emotionally limping back to Mr. Hansen's English class, I attempted to suck up my pain. The class was still in session, so I quietly walked in and took my assigned seat, attempting to be as invisible as possible. Failing miserably at the effort, I must have exposed my dejected feelings with body language that any observant teacher could detect. When the release bell sounded, I found Mr. Hansen standing by my desk, discreetly requesting me to stick around. I knew Mr. Hansen well. I knew he was a kind man, but after the meeting I just experienced, my first thought was one of fear. I couldn't handle another scolding. As the classroom emptied, Mr. Hansen sat on the desk adjacent to my own and began to speak. I can't recall all that he said, but I can say with absolute honesty that the heart of his message was a transforming moment in my young life. It served as a primer to ignite a long season of life change. He opened the conversation by telling me I was very smart and not stupid, as I had come to believe. Frank, he said, I want to tell you something, and I want you to believe me. He went on choosing his words carefully. You have gifts that no one else has, and when you fully discover them and start operating in them, you're going to become a great success. Your life is going to make a difference in this world if you stop believing lies about yourself and if you don't give up. He spoke with certainty and authority. As I look back, knowing what I know now, his words were more like prophecy than hopeful thinking. He spoke of qualities in my character that were more important than academic deficiencies, telling me things about myself I couldn't imagine how he knew. He spoke about untapped gifts that had become suppressed and hidden beneath the surface of my inadequacies. I'll never forget the twinkle in his eye when he said, Frank, the only thing you'll need more than most others is two secretaries instead of one. I'll never forget that because that too was a prophetic statement that would come to pass later in my life. Mr. Hansen put his actions where his mouth was, offering to spend extra time with me. He taught me secrets concerning how to study and read, He taught me skills that would one day get me onto the dean's list with a master's degree in administrative education. He did one other thing that day that may have had the most important impact of all. He changed my name. Up until then, I had been called Franklin by my teachers at school and Frank by my close friends. I had always had the nickname Try given to me by my parents. I was Franklin Willard Robinson III. And tri stood for three, like tricycle or triangle. Mr. Hansen, making a play on words, said, From this day on, we're going to call you Tri, instead of Frank, here at school, because you'll always have to remember to try a little harder than everyone else. And so it was. I became known as Tri Robinson, both socially and professionally, from that day on. Bad things can be used to empower the good. The year before my conversation with Mr. Hansen, Some unfortunate events took place, events 
than I now believe set me up so I would be ready to receive the full impact of his words that day. There's a scripture in the book of Romans that tells how God uses all things, even bad things, to turn our lives around for the good. It's sort of like that saying that goes, no pain, no gain. When I was in the sixth grade, my parents thought I needed something to help build my self-esteem. The idea came to them that playing a musical instrument and becoming a part of the orchestra would be a good thing. I'm not sure how it was decided, but within a matter of weeks, I started taking flute lessons from a music teacher, Mr. Atkinson. He came faithfully to our home every Wednesday night right after dinner. He was a nice man, and I suspect a good enough teacher if his student had any musical ability at all. Unfortunately, I wasn't the child prodigy my parents hoped for, and I think Mr. Atkinson saw it right off. Nevertheless, he continued to do his part to prepare me to audition for the school orchestra the following semester. Surprising as it was, as it was for all of us, and especially, I think, for Mr. Atkinson, I succeeded at the audition and was actually accepted. One morning, I rode my Schwinn bicycle to school after an overnight rainstorm had soaked the streets. I was with a couple of buddies of mine, having a good time and probably not thinking too clearly. When I arrived at the school bike racks that morning, I realized it was orchestra day and I had forgotten my flute. Things were bad enough at school as it was, and the thought of being ridiculed for yet another negligent memory loss was more than I could bear. In desperation and haste, I made a last-minute decision to make a run for home in hopes of retrieving the instrument and returning before the first period bell rang. I not only didn't make the bell that day, but didn't make it back to school for several weeks. I jumped back on my cruiser and headed home as fast as I could pedal. Though the streets were slippery due to the rain, I threw all caution to the, to the wind and rode as fast as I could until I rounded the final corner in front of our house. Going way too fast, I hit a mud slick and skidded completely out of control. Not responding to my full pressure on the coaster brakes, the bike didn't slow down until it hit full force into the front bumper of my mother's 1956 pink Cadillac. The impact catapulted me headfirst into the air. I bounced like a flat rock skipping off the car's metal roof before touching down mouth first in the gutter on the opposite side. The impact hurt, but I had survived. At least, I thought I had, until my, fo- my tongue felt the strange sensation of an empty hole where all my front teeth once had been. They were mysteriously gone, and the reality of it took only a few seconds to register. This new revelation motivated a spontaneous death-curdling scream, which my mother easily heard at the far end of our house. It was the kind of scream that takes years off a mother's life especially when she sees blood streaming from her child's mouth. It was a bad day for my mom, but an even worse day for me. Going back to that afternoon in Mr. Hansen's classroom, I want to summarize the events surrounding my life and why his timely words had such a lasting impact. First, I was in the heat of adolescence, the most awkward season of the human experience. Second, my name was Franklin, and not just Franklin, but Franklin Willard Robinson III. Third, I was the smallest boy in my grade with the exception of one other kid. Fourth, I had dyslexia, which made me feel extremely stupid at the time. And finally, I played the flute, or at least I did until I knocked out all my front teeth. (laughs) 
I might add that knocking my teeth out resulted in a fairly messed up face for quite a while. All of this is to say, at that moment in my life, I was completely and totally convinced that I was the biggest loser in my school and possibly in the entire human race. Mr. Hansen chose secondary education more as a life calling than as a profession because of a deep desire to help kids like me succeed. In the coming weeks, he lived up to his promise and invited me to stay after school. He didn't require or demand it, but offered his extra time to teach me how to beat the system. By that, I mean he showed me how to get the most out of a chapter in a textbook without reading it in its entirety. He introduced me to things like cliff notes, and other shortcut methods for retaining information and successfully taking tests. He had assured me that I would have no trouble getting ahead in life because of my personality and willingness to work. Then he told me something I couldn't believe. He told me I was a leader, and in time I'd see people wanting to follow me. That was one thing I didn't see in myself, but in just a few years I became the captain of both my track and cross-country teams in high school. These were teams that won city championships in the Los Angeles school system two years in a row. Later in life, I became recognized nationally as a as school teacher of the year. And after retiring early from a teaching profession, I founded and built a church of over 2,000 people and became a leader in our international church movement. No one could have been more surprised than I was as my life of leadership unfolded over the next 50 years. Sometimes I wonder if Mr. Hansen didn't speak those things into existence. I have learned over the years that words are very powerful, either blessings or curses that carry with them the ability to build people up or tear them down. My dad became the principal of Beverly Hills High School and was recognized as one of the top administrative educators in the United States. This probably had an impact on my later decision to enter the field of education. In retrospect, I think it was more because of my relationship with Mr. Hansen that in my second year of teaching, I found myself entering a seventh grade classroom full of gifted but unmotivated students at Parkview Junior High School in Lancaster, California. I wanted to help young people see their greater potential, even when they couldn't see it in themselves. I wanted to do for others what Bill Hansen had done for me. First year of teaching, Parkview Junior High School. My first year of teaching began in 1972, and it was a wonderful and rich experience. I discovered I really loved teaching. Along with loving what you do, creativity and imagination are probably the next biggest keys to a teacher's success. I found that kids responded to teachers who were willing to put aside stale lesson plans with a readiness to take a few risks and break status quo. Looking back, I think one of the main motivations that drove me into teaching was the desire to keep my classroom creative and alive because of my own personal struggles in school. I wanted to prove that a student could learn and actually thrive in the process. Towards the end of my first year, I received a notice from our school principal, Dr. Dwight Stapley, requesting me to come to his office. I was nervous about the unexpected meeting because I knew some of the things I had done to liven up my classroom had been a bit unconventional and had irritated a few of the teachers on staff. For example, when I fired off my old 50 caliber Hawkins muzzle-loading rifle outside the door of my classroom, with a blank, of course, I'm not crazy, I knew right away it wasn't the best idea. The students loved it, and it did add flavor to an otherwise mundane lesson on the Civil War. 
It drew quite a few scowls as several teachers peered out their doors down the corridor. Also, I had already been pulled into the principal's office for a reprimand, which turned out to be a simple but very bad misunderstanding. That particular time, Dr. Stapley had called me into his office and asked me to take a seat. I could tell by his actions that what was about to take place was going to be uncomfortable for him, and most likely for me as well. Dwight liked me, I knew that much, but I also knew something was up, and I had the distinct feeling it wasn't going to be good. He started by telling me he had received a complaint from an irate mother of one of my students. My wheels immediately started to turn. What had I done most recently to merit the words, irate mother? I couldn't pull up anything. Then he told me. He said it straight out. A mother called me this morning extremely upset because she saw you in a local department store yesterday afternoon. She said she saw you holding hands with one of your students. Wow. When he said that, I totally freaked out. What? I said, with what student? She didn't give a name, he said, but did mention that she was really cute. My wheel started to turn again, only a little more rapidly now. Are you sure she said it was me? I asked. With sternness in his voice, Dr. Stapley said that the mother was absolutely certain it was me. My reaction to this whole declaration, both with words and a bright red face, must have convinced him of my guilt. I hesitated before saying anything else. My personal calendar and schedule started turning around and around in my head. Where had I been yesterday afternoon? Had I been in the store at all? Suddenly it hit me. Yes, I had been there. Not with a student, but with my wife, Nancy. <laughs> Both the humor and relief of the revelation came out in a huge outburst of laughter. White must have been bewildered and mystified as he waited for the explanation of my uncanny response. I burst out with a great relief. That wasn't a student, that was my wife. Nancy, 21 at the time, had always looked young for her age and was no doubt very cute. But my students were 12 years old, for goodness sake. I might also add, in those days, 12-year-old girls actually looked like they were 12 years old. Dwight and I had a good laugh, but later that night, when I told Nancy what had occurred, the only thing she said was, looking 12 year old, years old is not a compliment. <laughs> this was especially true considering she was pregnant with our first child. As for me, I still thought it was funny. I was a little nervous when Principal Stapley called me for another visit. His secretary showed me into his office, and I took a seat, anticipating at least a mild scolding for something I probably deserved. To my great relief, the rebuke I had braced for never came. Instead, he offered me the opportunity to take a new position the following year. He offered me the position to teach in what was called the GATE program, the GATE program. GATE was an acronym for Gifted and Talented Education, a special class for kids who had been identified and categorized as potentially high achievers. This didn't mean that they were high achievers, just that they had the potential. In fact, many of them had become so bored with school that they had a ten tendency to be disruptive in class. They were sometimes known for using their smarts to terrorize teachers. They had been unmotivated, unchallenged, and disillusioned with status quo, standardized textbooks teaching. What they needed was to be challenged, or as it was stated in the manual I later studied on the matter, the GATE program required the students to receive quantitative differentiated curriculum. Simply put, 
They needed a more stimulating and creative learning environment than they might encounter in the conventional classroom. The biggest advantage to this new assignment was that it would grant me greater freedom as the teacher. It would encourage me to look for ways of teaching students away from the school campus if and when it was applicable to the curriculum. Honestly, this was music to my ears. A significant point concerning the story I'm about to tell as it relates to the reburial of liver-eating Johnston is that one of the classes I would be assigned to teach was American history and literature. Again, looking back, I feel that this was just another piece of a great plan. Needless to say, I took the position even though I had deep reservations that the kids I would be encountering could both read and spell circles around me. I could feel my old fears and insecurities rising up. Even after five successful years of college and a year of teaching under my belt, I still hadn't completely overcome my personal learning disabilities. I had learned how to compensate for my dyslexia issue, but truth be known, it was still privately at work whittling away at my self-confidence. If one of my classes was going to be English literature, you would think the teacher would at least be able to write on the chalkboard, we did use chalkboards in those days, without having the fear of misspelling words. What great laughs that could bring from a class full of kids who, it was said, would be looking for some devious way to humiliate and take down the teacher. The very thought was enough to keep me awake at night, even though I had already said yes to the challenge. At times like this, I would find myself returning to the counsel of Mr. Hansen for strength and direction. I recall him telling me that in order to be a success, I would need to reach deep for creativity and learn to compensate for, uh, by drawing on my strengths rather than allowing my weaknesses to dominate the outcome of my actions. One of my strengths was story- storytelling. Another was in the area of history, literature, and folklore of the Old West. If there is one thing five years of university work did for me, it was to give me a deep love and appreciation for the history and literature of the Old West. And so it was there that I would go for strength. As my teaching experience unfolded at Parkview Junior High School, I soon realized a very important truth. I discovered that every student, whether struggling with disabilities as I had or participating in a gifted and talented program, would need a Mr. Hansen in their life. Thank God for all the Mr. Hansen and Mrs. Hansen teachers in our lives. They do make a difference. Next, I'll be reading from the first book in Dr. Lori Bauer's fantasy series titled Fairy Wars, The Dark Ones. Here's the first chapter, Royal Trouble. My name is Kaylin Bartholomew Ambrose. One day, ten years ago, I was fishing at the Sylvia River in the Wardell Mountains with my friend Gamble whom I've known since college. During our hike to the river, I cut my ankle on a strange spiny plant. I cleaned and bandaged the wound, but it swelled, itched, and burned like fire. Anxious to get home to apply antibacterial cream, I hastened to help Gamble break down camp. Next, something happened that forever changed my life. When I'm packing up our gear, I see peripheral movement. Assuming it's the wind kicking up forest debris, 
I ignore it and help fold our two-person tent and put out the campfire. The morning has the last chill of winter and I shiver, my breath visible while I work. As birds twitter in the trees, I traipse down to the riverbank, fill a bucket with water, and carry it over to our fire pit, a circle of charcoal-stained river rock that smells like burnt pine. I stop in front of the rocks and lift the bucket to douse the remaining embers when a squeal reaches my ears. I look over at Gamble, who's still bent over the rolled-up tent, tying ropes around it. He's not the source of the sound and apparently hasn't heard it. I look around to determine the squeal's origin when I hear a high-pitched voice below me say, Hey, you, move your foot. You're about to break mine. To my surprise, when I look down, there stands a tiny, pointy-eared creature with translucent rainbow-colored wings, one of which is wedged under my foot along with his arm. I know this sounds strange, but he's no taller than a pencil and has a tiny crown made from purple flowers and green leaves. His eyes are large and black as night, and he sparkles from head to toe, like someone sprinkled him with gold glitter. I set the bucket down and raise my foot to let the little creature go. Disturbed about my mental health, I turn away, deciding the cut of my leg is probably infected, causing visions. I'm certainly not going to converse with an illusion. I squint and look over at Gamble to see if he's seen or heard anything. He's still bent over the tent, oblivious to my hallucination. Wait, the creature urges in his high, squeaky voice. I turn back and say, am I dreaming? I bend down further, coughing a little from campfire smoke. The birds have stopped singing, and I ask, who are you? You're not dreaming. I'm Prince Enlil, heir to the fairy throne and son of King Aubrey, owner of these woods. I stopped here to warm myself by your fire, only to be attacked by you. And who, impertinent sir, are you? The winged creature rubs his freed arm, and I notice one of his luminous wings is bent. My name's Kaelin, I say, and following the fairy style of introduction, add, a clock repairman and son of Mortimer. But these words are, woods are public, not private. I don't know what you're jabbering about over there, Gamble says. I look over my shoulder as he straightens and turns around the tent on his shoulder. Of course these woods are public. Now, if you don't mind, would you help me finish loading up? My friend has apparently not heard the creature. The fairy prince flutters his wings a little, ignores Gamble, and continues in his squeaky voice. Well, clockmaker Kaelin, it's nice to make your acquaintance, but you are mistaken. You are, tras you are trespassing on my family's land, as it has been for hundreds of years. You could be grateful that we, the fairy race, allow you humans to traverse and even settle in these woods. In older days, fairies cursed those who dared usurp our territory but we now consider you humans our allies, since many of you are benevolent and sympathetic to our cause. Now, Sir Kalin, he peers up at me, are you one of those humans? Are you a benevolent and generous man, someone people seek out when they are in trouble? Or are you an angry, selfish man with few friends and few allies? I kneel and whisper my reply, not wanting Gamble to think me crazier than he already does. I don't know how to answer that, I shrug. I was a Boy Scout when I was younger, and part of our motto was, do a good turn daily. I suppose I've done my share of helping and serving others, but mostly I'm a simple man, nothing special. I'm not a bad person, but not an angel either. Why do you ask? Behind me I hear the punctuated clangs of metal cookware being violently packed. Gamble apparently hears my whispers and mutters about self, and he mutters about self-absorbed people who talk to themselves to avoid work. Well, let us hope you are good enough, Kaelin, son of Mortimer. In fact, let us hope there's something of a hero in you, 
for you've been chosen. Prince Enlil put one hand, puts one hand on his waist. Now I'm late for an important appointment, and I must go. I bid you good day, and we will meet again, you can be sure. Oh, and be prepared. Your foot that stepped on me is going to cause discomfort. The fairy brandishes a golden wand I hadn't noticed before and taps the tip of his bent wings with it. The appendage immediately straightens. He flutters the wing a couple of times and then touches his left arm with the wand. Ah, much better. For a moment he hovers above our dying campfires of testing out the newly repaired wing. Until we meet again. Wait, your highness, I shout. I have more questions. From behind me, Gamble asks, your highness, what's wrong with you, buddy? With a flurry of Wings, the fairy prince shoots up and away and is gone almost before I can blink. I pour the water bucket on the fire, which sizzles and pops, sending a plume of musky smoke into the air and turn to gamble. He's staring at me with a concerned look. Lines form between his rather ample brows as he asks, Have you lost your mind? He leans closer and peers into my eyes. Or are you just trying to get me to do all the work? I hold out my palms, palms to him. Didn't you see him? Didn't you hear him? What are you talking about? The tiny creature with wings. Oh, come now, Kaylin, he raises his eyebrows. Your brain's been affected by those ghost stories we told around the campfire last night. No, I mean it. His name is Prince Enlil, and he has wings. Gamble, real wings. Very funny. One corner of his mouth twists in a smirk. I must say, you have an imagination. I'm serious. I know it sounds crazy, but he was here, and he was real. I realize my voice has taken on a desperate tone. Gamble continues to stare at me as if I've lost my mind. But then he looks around, searching our campsite. Finally, he shakes his head. Sorry, dude, I don't see any flying creatures. Except the birds. He points to a crow cawing from the top of a ponderosa pine. Okay, Gamble nods. You could be suffering after effects from that cut on your ankle. Or maybe those mushrooms we ate last night were bad. They can cause hallucinations, you know. I lower my head, rub my eyes, and think, maybe the fairy was a vision. Never mind, I was rehearsing more bedtime fantasies to tell your children. He sighs, sounding relieved. They look forward to your stories, but if you start having fantasies about beautiful women, be sure to share those with me. We hoist up our gear, and in several trips from the campsite to Gamble's pickup, pack everything in the bed and tie a tarp over it. As I make trips to the pickup, I notice how green the forest looks almost hurting my eyes with its brilliance. How noisy the birds and rustling leaves are, and how strongly the pungent scents of pine and sweet wildflowers assault my nose. I even smell, I even smell something musty. Mushrooms? It's like my senses are being bombarded. I wonder if the cut from that spiny plant gave me more than visions. Maybe it's some kind of super hallucinogen. After leaving our campsite, and with his tongue stuck out the corner of his mouth, Gamble careens pick up down the mountain curves he knows so well. He loves the sounds of flailing gravel on his fenders. I also know he's anxious to return home to his family after a weekend away. Unlike Gamble, I'm single, preferring my own company to the challenge of living with another. As the only one left in my family, I'm used to being alone, and solitude suits me. I eat when I want, sleep when I want, and work as diligently or as lazily as my mood dictates because I own a home-based clock repair business. All in all, I live a quiet existence with a place for everything and everything in its place. Some might call my life dull or conventional, but I prefer order to chaos. In my experience, predictable clocks are easier to work with than unpredictable people. 
Gamble drops me off at home that afternoon, and from the bed of his pickup under the tarp, I grab my backpack, sleeping bag, tackle box, and fishing pole. I thank him for the ride and head toward my front door. My modest clapboard home is 50 years old and consists of two bedrooms, a kitchen, and a bath, and a small living room. I've rented this place for three years from a crusty old gentleman named Hank, who now resides in assisted living. Although Hank has offered to sell me the property and I'd buy it in a minute, I can't afford it. For some reason, clock repair is seasonal, mostly autumn and winter, so I doubt I could secure a mortgage. Despite the clapboard's weathered appearance, it's in fairly good condition, although it has elderly creaks and groans. The floors squeak when I walk, the pipes leak, and the electrical system trips circuit breakers and blows fuses at the most inopportune times, like the time I invite a gamble and his family to dinner. Until a few years ago, when my sister Cassie took pity on me, my home was sparsely furnished with second-hand pieces. Cassie put up curtains, non-frilly at my insistence, and hung a decorative mirror in a peaceful forest painting. She also added throw pillows in masculine colors like brown and gray. I leave my camping gear on the kitchen counter and do my usual walkthrough to make sure no pipes are leaking. Nothing's on fire and no one's intruded in my absence. Even though my possessions are well-worn, every object in the old house, from my favorite turquoise recliner to my vintage tube-type radio, seem crystal clear, exhibiting sharp edges, as if I'm looking through a magnifying glass, which gives me a slight headache. I smell old garbage in my wastebasket, an odor I hadn't noticed yesterday morning, as well as the scent of onions from yesterday's breakfast, as if I've just taken the pan off the stove. I swear I can see the fabrics weave in my favorite chair, and each particle of dust on the radio. I'll be glad when the effects of this crazy scratch on my leg wear off. My house is situated on two acres at the northern edge of Mansentia Forest, the nearest neighbors a couple miles away. Our crime rate is very low in Bishop Province, so I don't lock my doors. I've considered getting a dog to discourage the occasional nomad, but for now, the quiet is nicer than the responsibility of a pet. I disinfect and rebandage the cut of my leg, which has miraculously healed during the day, but my left foot that stepped on the prince still tingles. Purely psychological, I'm sure. To get my mind off silly things like fairy hallucinations, I enter my spare bedroom, which is filled with clock repair stocks set up on three long tables, arranged in a U-shape, including tools like my oiler pin, pivot locator, and centering hook, tweezers in various sizes, gear pullers, drill tools, spare chime keys, and clock grommets, and a loop with other jeweler's magnifiers clamped onto the edges of the tables. I try to keep my work tables clear, except when fixing a particular clock. Plastic storage boxes with numerous cubby holes hold spare parts, keys, grommets, all sizes of springs, screws, nuts, bolts, and gears, each neatly labeled for ease and speed of use. On the floor, I've placed a fan for air circulation, which comes in handy when working with strong-smelling varnishes. The room is lit by two windows and an overhead fluorescent fixture. A couple of my magnifiers also have built-in lights. This room is my sanctuary, with the satisfying minute scope of my work and the calming sound of clocks ticking and chiming in the background. Most tell, people tell me they wouldn't have the patience to do what I do, but I tell them fixing a clock is no more complicated than balancing a checkbook and a lot more satisfying. As my inventory of parts, I even participate in horology, building clocks from scratch. Technically, my degree is in mechanical engineering, but when I graduated, I couldn't stomach the corporate scene with its politics and unpredictability. Instead, I decided to teach myself clock repair, as I've always been fascinated by miniature mechanical workings. I wanted to work for myself and couldn't think of anything I'd rather do to make a living, even if that living is sporadic. 
That afternoon, I entered my workshop to finish repairing a clock I received several days ago, a Hubert Herr hand-carved cuckoo clock with an antlered buck's head on its pinnacle and circling dancers on its front, crafted somewhere around the turn of the 20th century. Its, its exterior beauty is only surpassed by its inner workings, a marvel of German engineering and precision. Most of a previous afternoon was required to calibrate and clean this clock. When my work's done, I hang the clock up and will periodically observe it over the next 24 hours to check its accuracy and make sure the cuckoo has the correct number and cadence on the hour. I'll also decide if the dancers twirl with the correct speed and configuration. While I was working, the foot that stepped on the prince began throbbing and stinging, but I ignored it, determined to finish before dark. When I look up from my work, the light from the windows is dimmed. I leave my workbench to fix a dinner of pork, boiled potatoes, and steamed broccoli, which tastes incredibly good due to my new heightened senses. I settle down for an evening of quiet reading, mostly trade journals, like clock springs and movements in a nationally syndicated evening newspaper, Modern Times. I usually wear reading glasses, which I've needed since my senior year of college, but inexplicably I don't need them tonight. I get up from time to time to check on my newly repaired clock, which seems to be working fine. The timepiece, including the, her cuckoo clock, strikes six o'clock when I can no longer ignore my throbbing foot, which is nagging me for most of the afternoon and which I attribute to the day of hiking. Since I put my feet up in the turquoise recliner to read, the tingle in that foot has changed to stinging, then to burning, and finally to searing. The pain has reached the point where I don't want to get up anymore to check on the recently repaired clock. I take my hiking boot and sock off to discover my foot is now a peculiar shade of green, like mashed peas, and sports oozing yellow welts on top. As soon as I remove my boot, the foot swells. I stare at my distended appendage in disbelief. Surely that tiny fairy prince who didn't even touch my bare skin couldn't have caused this. Wasn't he an illusion after all? Yet he warned me to watch out for my foot. Not sure how to treat this malady, I hobble to the bathroom to find something soothing, soothing to spread on my foot. Wind rattles the shutters, which is how I feel, rattled by pain and strange sensations. I hear thunder rumble in the distance. By the time I reach the bathroom, I can hardly stand. Heightened senses have definite disadvantages, especially when one is in pain. The storm outside crescendos with deafening peals of thunder, which shake the old house windows. The noise clatters through my brain, like a kid playing with metal pots and pans. After applying medicated cream, which doesn't help, I ingest pain medic medicine left over from a recent surgery and call my doctor. Along with Tri Robinson, our friend Pam McLeary also took a stroll down memory lane. And as simple as R.C. Cola, she remembers how much she enjoyed long, sunny summer afternoons talking and laughing with teenage friends while growing up in a small Indiana farm town. It's called As Simple as R.C. Cola. When I was in high school, I loved spending Sunday afternoons with my friends from church. Many times our get-togethers happen as a result of last-minute planning, but no matter, we didn't need plans. After the church service was over, we'd decide whose house we wanted to go to, and then we'd check with our parents. Before my friend Joyce's house was destroyed by a tornado, she lived near a small town not far from our little country church. Linda, Joyce, and I would have lunch with Joyce's family and then sit outside and talk or stay indoors and play board games. 
During harvest time, we shelled peas and shucked corn. But no matter what we did, the background music was our own voices. We weren't plugged into headphones or mindlessly texting. We actually conversed. We talked about everything from school to boyfriends to the latest hairdos. We just talked. Sometimes we'd walk the dirt road that led into town, usually to get a soda from the gas station. While we sauntered, skipped, and danced under the warm summer sun, we talked and laughed together, the three of us enjoying a break from teenage angst. When we arrived at the gas station on the edge of town, we paid our 15 cents before we plunged elbow-deep into the ice-filled vat. It was a heavenly sight, long-necked bottles of cold, syrupy sweetness swimming amidst the ice chunks. What to choose? Orange crush? Knee-high grape? Bubble up? R.C. Cola won my vote almost every time. I often think about those summer Sundays and the walks to town. Why? Probably because that time in my life represents a moment of simplicity. The high-speed pace of today's world needs more moments like that. A simple walk down the middle of a country road, a laugh shared with friends, and nothing more pressing than deciding what soda one should purchase. I didn't want those afternoons with my friends to end. Maybe that's why I now cherish simple coffee moments with my husband, talking and sharing life with my best friend. That's all for this edition of Let Me Tell You a Story. The author's websites and information regarding their books are listed on my website, beckylyles.com. Until next time, bye. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckylyles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.